Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. O oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, 
cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Well, now's the time for children to be finding their way out uh, for their activities if they'd like to be doing that. Um, uh, meanwhile, uh, just as they're doing so, let me remind you uh, where we've been. Uh, we've been travelling uh, something of a spiritual journey uh, with King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, one of the most powerful men throughout all history, reigning over uh, a magnificent empire. Uh, creator of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient worlds. In every way, extraordinary, unique. And yet, I hope this morning, we'll see that in all sorts of other ways, he is every man. We will find ourselves here. Uh, let me remind you uh, where we've been. Uh, in chapter one, it was graduation day 
at Babylon University, uh, the class of 601 uh, receiving their degrees. Uh, and much to Nebuchadnezzar's surprise, it was four exiles from Jerusalem who were picking up all the prizes. And then on into chapter 2, uh, where uh, a dream was dreamt and an interpretation given, leading Nebuchadnezzar to exclaim to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Then on into chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar is astounded at the salvation uh, of those three men from the fiery furnace. So this time he declares, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. No other God can save this way. But up to this point, it seems very much as though Nebuchadnezzar remains on the outside, gazing in. It's their God he's praising. He's a spectator more than a participant. There's nothing personal about this yet. And maybe in many ways the same could be said of you as you gaze in this morning. Perhaps it's during this lockdown phase that you've found your way to these online services. Uh, and you've become intrigued, but you're not yet persuaded as you gaze in on the Christian faith. Well, today I'd love us to notice how a gear shift takes place. Nebuchadnezzar's journey, as it were, arrives at something of a point of crisis. Uh, we're we're going to track his journey in this kind of way. We're going to notice how it begins in the land of self-sufficient pride and then travels through the valley of humiliation uh, before arriving finally with the vision of the king. Uh, first then, the land of self-sufficient pride. Uh, pick it up there in verse 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is at home, in his palace, contented and prosperous. Uh, every dream, as it were, is fulfilled. Every ambition has been realised. And yet all is not well. For in the night, Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream, and this dream leaves him afraid. Uh, we are a funny bunch, aren't we? Uh, when uh, we don't have stuff, uh, we fret and worry uh, until we can get hold of it. Uh, but when we have got stuff, we fret and worry uh, in case it might be taken away from us. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream here is a vision of loss, of things being snatched away, a premonition of being cut down to size. Uh, indeed, that's the imagery of the dream. Uh, in it, he's represented by this huge tree uh, uh, piercing up to heaven, rather as his uh, statue did uh, in chapter two, in chapter three. Uh, uh, but this tree is felled, and with it fall all of his great achievements. And the dream, it turns out, is a warning. A warning that pride does indeed go before a fall. Because uh, that's the, the focus of the chapter, rampant, unrestrained pride. Now, pride's a funny uh, term, isn't it? Uh, because in all sorts of ways, we, we speak of pride in positive ways. Uh, we say things like, uh, take pride in your appearance, or what a proud moment or you must be so proud of them. And we speak about it positively. And there is an appropriate admiration of others. 
uh, and there's a right sense of personal achievement. But, but the pride that we're thinking about here is, is a different sort of pride. It's a spiritual pride. And it's captured in verse 29 by just two words. The words by and for. Uh, just look with me at verse 29 again. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon? I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. All our spiritual failings are, if you like, caught up in those two little words, by my power and for my glory. By my power uh, captures, as it were, a kind of a spiritual ingratitude or as Tim Keller rather nicely uh, phrases it, a cosmic plagiarism. Uh, we get what plagiarism is. Uh, academics get really twitchy about that. It's whenever you uh, claim somebody else's work as your own, you, you publish somebody else's words, uh, you steal someone else's ideas, uh, claiming them for yourself. Uh, whenever we look at what we have done in this world and say, by my power, it's cosmic plagiarism. We're claiming God's work for our own. And you say, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, but surely I worked hard for the things that I have. It was me who studied uh, in order to get those qualifications. Uh, me who, who worked hard to build up this business uh, or raise this family, uh, buy this house. Well, yes. But what did you work with? Who gave you the body that laboured, the mind that studied, the gifts that created, the imagination that brought those things into being? Who finally gave you the, the, the hours and days and months and years of your life in which all these things have happened? Do you see that the existence of a creator God means that all of these things are given to us. We are his creature. In the New Testament, uh, we read, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So the first spiritual error is by my power. Uh, the second is for my glory. As if somehow we are the ones to whom all praise and honour is due. We are the one at the centre of things and, and everything is, is arranged and organised around us. Apparently the uh, Australian preacher, John Chapman, uh, was once taken on a private tour uh, of the House of Lords. Uh, and uh, his very posh host uh, took him into the chamber uh, and showed him, amongst other things, the throne on which uh, the Queen sits at the state opening of Parliament. Uh, and George Chapman said it was magnificent, uh, raised up a few steps, uh, so uh, towering over the, over the chamber, uh, and roped off uh, so that nobody uh, might uh, trespass upon it. 
but apparently John Chapman said to his host, um, listen here, uh, how's about I sneak under the rope, sit up on that throne, and then you take a little snap of me. The folks back home would love it. And John Chapman said that uh, he could see the colour drain from his host's face at the very idea of it. I'm kidding, John Chapman said. I know I can't go sitting on Her Majesty's throne. And yet in all sorts of ways, uh, that's exactly what we do in relation to God. We sit in his place. We say, for my glory. As if we were at the centre of things. Every time I forget that there is a God that's greater than me, every time I forget that there is one to whom glory and honour and praise is rightly due, I'm putting myself in his place. Now please don't think that um, this problem of spiritual pride is limited uh, to kings of great power and might uh, who are majestic in their excellence. That somehow this doesn't apply to you because actually you feel mostly inadequate and unsuccessful. You hate the limelight and being at the centre of things. Well, be careful because pride, to our surprise, lurks there as well. Because when we, we hide and shrink back, Pride is also at work. The kind of pride that says, it would be terrible to embarrass myself. I couldn't bear it uh, to make a fool of myself in public. Now, the person plagued by self-doubt, troubled by low self-esteem, is still a person consumed with thought of themselves. It's a kind of inverted pride. But the focus is still on us. So Nebuchadnezzar's journey uh, begins in the land of self-sufficient pride. Uh, and I hope you'll see that it's a land that is familiar territory to all of us. But the next stage of the journey is very different. Uh, we come secondly to the Valley of Humiliation. Because this dream, it turns out, uh, is a warning. Daniel urges Nebuchadnezzar to heed its message. Uh, look at it there in verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Demonstrate your change of heart, your change of attitude, and demonstrate it by a change in activity and action, a newfound generosity and kindness to others. But we're told that a year passes by and the warning is not heeded. And instead of that, Nebuchadnezzar's world comes crashing down around him. He is, if you like, given over to his sin. Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, that declaration of pride that we looked at a moment ago, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals and will eat grass like the ox. Now, lots of energy has been given to trying to work out what particular psychiatric illness Nebuchadnezzar might have suffered from here. But, but I think that endeavour really misses the point. Because it's not so much that we need to focus on 
a particular path that any individual might take in the Valley of Humiliation, but to notice the features of the general terrain. Two elements stand out, it seems to me, here. The first is a powerlessness, an impotence. In the Valley of Humiliation, we're forced to admit that, that there are things that we cannot do. It could be a relationship we can't restore, a disability we can't fix, an illness we can't cure, a loss that we can't make good. Proud Nebuchadnezzar felt that nothing was beyond him. But now we see the emperor's clothes for what they really are. When strength and capacity and authority are all stripped away from him. And we know this is true. That in the things that matter to us most. In death and illness. In battles with our selfishness and our pride. We cannot cure ourselves. And most of all. We cannot find our own way to God. But alongside this powerlessness, Nebuchadnezzar also experiences isolation. We're told that he's driven from people, utterly alone. And you see that that too is the logical end point of pride. Because when life becomes all about me, there is no room for you. I might be the narcissist whose gaze is fixed on the mirror. Or I might be the neurotic who is consumed with fears. But the result is the same. My preoccupation with myself means there's no time and space for you. And the logical endpoint of that is that I am alone. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was alone in his valley of humiliation. And I can't help thinking that in a strange kind of way, in the valley of COVID, things are much the same. Because we too have been humbled, haven't we? Facing a virus that we cannot control, that we're powerless to cure. And facing also a self-isolation, an aloneness that we cannot bear. And perhaps, in that sense, we too have been given over. That we too might learn where proud self-sufficiency leads. Well, where to from here? Where's the path that leads out of the Valley of Humiliation and, and gets us back onto some higher ground? Well, we'll discover that final part of the journey uh, in just a moment. But um, as it were, um, on our journey, let's uh, pull over and uh, rest in a lay-by for a moment. Um, uh, turn on the radio, listen to a little bit of music. Uh, we're going to hear uh, a song now. You could stand and sing, the words will be on the screen, or you might just want to sit and listen. It's a song that will actually signpost us, uh, that we might see the way ahead.
Welcome back. Now, so far, as we've tracked Nebuchadnezzar's journey, uh, we've seen how it begins uh, in the land of proud self-sufficiency uh, and how God takes him uh, down into the valley of humiliation. But happily, that's not the end of the journey. No, the journey ends with a vision of the king. Uh, verse 34 is the turning point in this final section where we read, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards the heavens and my sanity was restored. And we might think to ourselves, well, which came first? Did the madness lift uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar was able to lift up his eyes to heaven? 
Or, or was it the raising of his eyes to heaven that caused the madness to leave him? And I think actually it's all of a piece. I think they go together, for until we lift our eyes and acknowledge God, we are lost in a kind of madness. The madness of pride, the madness that abandons our childlike dependence on God and replaces it with a godlike dependence on ourselves. The fool is the one who says there is no God. And the point at which we abandon our folly and acknowledge God is simultaneously the end of our madness and the acknowledgement of things as they rightly are. You see, in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar stands on the roof of his palace, gazing down with pride. But in verse 34, things have been reversed. Now the direction of Nebuchadnezzar's gaze is upwards. He looks up and his praise is given to the Most High, and he honours and glorifies him. Indeed, the central lesson of this chapter is made clear by its repetition. One of you noticed, as Karen and Blair read it for us, uh, one phrase repeated three times in verse 17, again in verse 25, and the final time in verse 32. All the, the, the self-same words as we read that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And finally, it seems, Nebuchadnezzar gets that. He is, as it were, an Old Testament illustration for us of a New Testament truth. For when Jesus came, this is what he said. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But don't mistake this. Don't imagine that somehow Nebuchadnezzar's humility earned him this reprieve. As if humility was just a trick, uh, just a card to play in order to win God over. No, the message of the New Testament shows us that that's not the way that it works. Instead, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, to the Gospel accounts, what we see is a Christ who was willing to humble himself in order that honour might come to us instead. It's an extraordinary paradox. Jesus emptied himself so we could be filled. He lowered himself so that we might be raised up. Much to our astonishment, the Gospel message is that it, it's not me who is humiliated, but Christ who is humiliated in my place. The strangest of reversals. Do you see how this works? Though I'm not the king of the universe, in my sinful pride I act as if I am. And then we see Jesus, who really is the king of the universe, acting as if he weren't. Isn't that what happens when he's born in a stable, born into poverty, lives without even a place to lay his head? Hasn't he humbled himself? So that finally, although it's you and I who should be humiliated, 
Jesus is humiliated in our place on the cross. And the features that we were thinking about earlier, well, well they're there, aren't they? As Jesus on the cross is utterly alone, forsaken by everyone. And Jesus on the cross, completely powerless, literally unable to lift a finger to help himself. But unlike in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, this isolation and powerlessness isn't forced, but it is chosen. He endures it for us. A swap takes place. Listen to these verses from the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The cross happened for us. And you see what, what that means that the gospel is able to do. The gospel is able to humble us. Because we, we see just what it was that God needed to do in order to save us. That it required nothing less than the death of his own son on the cross. But if the gospel humbles us in that way, the gospel also lifts us up. Because on the cross, we see what it is that God was willing to do in order that we might be saved. Simultaneously, we are brought low and raised up. No other religion can do this. No other philosophy deals with pride this way. Because no one other than God humbles himself and dies in our place, as Christ did for us. The chapter that we're reading ends with transformation. Nebuchadnezzar is made new. That's the picture we have here, humbled and restored, living life now as he should. No more of that godlike dependence upon himself, but in its place a proper childlike dependence upon God. For Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter, it became personal. All of us need to make this journey. And not once, but over and over again. Repeatedly coming to the cross to see the sacrifice that deals with our pride and restores us. We've got an opportunity to do that in the words of a confession now. Uh, you'll see the words come up now on the screen. And you'll see that there are words that admit that the land of self-sufficient pride is, sadly, familiar territory for all of us. Uh, which is why it's right to humble ourselves and raise our eyes to heaven in order that we might see Christ who was humbled in our place, but is now restored to glory. For Nebuchadnezzar, this is the chapter where it became personal. 
when a spectator became a participant and discovered grace. I guess it's possible that uh, for some of you uh, this is a moment when you could do something similar. Uh, pray this prayer and mean it uh, for the very first time. Uh, let's just be quiet for a moment and I'll lead us in this prayer. We say together, Father of mercy, in so many ways we are not humble. We love to exalt ourselves and we want to be praised and admired. Forgive us for our relentless pride and our powerful self-worship. Thank you for the humility of your Son, who became a servant, enduring deep humiliation and pain to rescue sinners like us. Thank you for giving us his obedience and counting us humble in him. Have mercy upon us and humble our pride for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now hear those words uh, from Hebrews again. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Our Lord God, this extraordinary gospel, this extraordinary reversal, where we who deserve that humiliation for the arrogance of our own pride, uh, find instead that Jesus is humiliated in our place. Uh, but as we gaze upon this, uh, we find uh, that we are uh, made new, uh, received, restored, uh, and ready to live uh, with our eyes uh, turned upwards uh, to Christ who is exalted with you, and where by your grace uh, we one day uh, will also be raised. Now thank you for this mercy. Uh, would we travel this journey again and again uh, that we might depend upon Christ more and more. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to come to a final song. Uh, next week, if you join us again as we move into chapter 5, uh, we'll discover a, a rather different response uh, to uh, the glories of God uh, in a very different king. Uh, but for now, uh, maybe children want to come back. Uh, we're going to stand and sing a final song together uh, as with humble hearts uh, we praise our God. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord.